0: Hi there, I'm Steve Davidson, your host on The Playful Musician, and you're listening to my very special guest this week, classical saxophonist, Otis Murphy. Dr. Murphy is professor of saxophone at the prestigious Indiana University Jacobs School of Music in Bloomington, Indiana. He has the distinction of being the youngest faculty ever appointed to the Jacobs School of Music, having obtained his position at the tender age of 28. Otis was a student of classical saxophone icon Eugene Rousseau. He also received a Fulbright Fellowship to study in France with French saxophonist Jean-Yves Formont. In our conversation, we spoke about his trajectory toward becoming a professional musician, how he got started with the saxophone, and what a big influence his father was on all that, along with the sacrifices his family made so he could, as a teenager, travel to Athens, Georgia about an hour and a half away from his home to study with Dr. Kenneth Fisher at the University of Georgia. Otis also shared what it was like to be a freshman at Georgia and to be playing with doctoral students in a saxophone quartet, which included fellow playful musician and guest Rhett Bender. He shares what it was like when he got the job at Indiana University still being a doctoral student and now having to teach his former classmates shares about his teaching style, the importance of music in his family. He, his wife and his six children are all musicians. He shares about the importance of tone and intonation and how he and his students practice the five T's and the challenge of switching between A440 here in the United States and A442 tuning in other countries. Otis will be playing the Enri Tomassi Concerto, for Saxophone and Orchestra with the Rogue Valley Symphony April 22nd through the 24th as part of their Masterworks 5 series, Reaching for the Sky. Those concerts will take place in Ashland, Medford and Grants Pass, Oregon. Otis talks about the work and his preparation for the role and how the saxophone plays a part in the whole concert series. I hope you enjoy my delightful conversation with Otis Murphy. Welcome to The Playful Musician. I'm your host, Steve Davidson. Each week, I sit down with musicians from all different paths, from composers to conductors, percussionists to piccolo players, to tease out their strategies, practice habits, tips, tools, tricks, routines, and how they keep all of it playful. The Playful Musician is an intimate look into the lives of each musician, how they got to where they are, what motivates and inspires them, and what playing music means to them. If you'd like to learn more about the guests or just more about being playful, head on over to the website, theplayfulmusician.com. There you can find show notes, links to all references mentioned in the show, and all kinds of resources related to music. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to The Playful Musician on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, why not leave a review as well? Thanks again, and without further ado, here is this week's episode. Otis, thank you so much for being here. It's such a pleasure to get to speak with you today.
1: Hello, Steve. What, a, what an honor this is, and thank you for taking this time from me.
0: Oh, my pleasure. How are things in uh, Bloomington?
1: It's good. It's good. It's it's right now. It's warming up. We're coming out of the deep freeze of
0: winter <laughs> into spring.
1: Uh, into spring. Yes, yes, and it's it's looking great. Um Bloomington gets it gets very hot weather, very cold. We get a, a, a you know, good amount of snow too. So we can oh, really? see it all here. We we're in this zone where it's we and we also get ice, which is, you know, a little a little scary sometimes.
0: <laughs> are you on spring break right now?
1: That's right. It is spring break. It's Friday. Spring break is almost done. And, um, it's been great. I've been out fishing with my kids and my wife and just slowing down a little bit this week. So
0: you have, am I correct in saying that you have six children?
1: That's right we have six kids. Wow yes. <laughs> That's a big family. <laughs> we have a big family yes my my wife is a musician um as well. she's a pianist her Her name is Haruko she's She's Japanese, and she and I met when we were graduate students here. Both of us were here at i u um, and then shortly after we were married, that's when we our first son was um, he was born almost to the day nine months after our wedding we were living we were living in France yes and uh it was very special but uh yeah we have six kids boy girl boy girl boy girl <laughs> <laughs> how did you manage that that's <laughs> luck it's, but we are just happy just as a family and i just, yeah. I just love them to death so yeah thanks for so asking so your
0: your first son was born in France
1: that's right yes um yeah i was a i was still a doctoral student at the time and, um, I, I received a grant, it's called a Fulbright grant, which was given by the, the government for me to go study for a year in France. And I went to study with a man, his, uh, his name is Jean-Yves Formaux. And, um, he, he's one of the greatest players in the world to me. And he just really inspired me. Um, and I wanted to study with him and I was fortunate to be able to get a Fulbright. Uh, and so, yeah, so my wife and I, we were married and then, um, discovered we were pregnant a few months later before and then we were going to move to france um and so yes while studying there our son was born in france and it was it was really special
0: that is really special so i and do that sh- oh go ahead I was,
1: gonna say, I was gonna say we also struggled i mean neither of us spoke the language fluently oh wow um yes and it was and also we were not living in paris um with only one year to be there uh, my my wife and I decided we would go directly to the town where Mr. Formo teaches and lives, and so it's a suburb outside of Paris. And um, and he just took us under his wing when we arrived. We were very pregnant and he and his his quartet had um we had found an apartment and they had they they met us there they had a a futon mattress for us a, um a hot plate to cook with a table a a comfortable chair for my wife they really took us under their wing um but yeah we had a wonderful time there
0: that's amazing and i i, I definitely want to get back to talking about your time with fermo but um i wanted to f- I wanted to ask about your family and growing up like where was your family a musical family and where are you the only musician or how did how did that all start for you?
1: Sure sure no no Um, yeah I am the only musician I'm I'm from Georgia a little town in Georgia Um, people probably haven't heard of it it's maybe they've heard of the city of Macon Georgia if they've heard of and it's near Macon it's called Milledgeville Georgia and um, it's a kind of small town. Both of my parents were were public school teachers. My dad taught English, and my mom taught business. My dad also he had a second job as a as a policeman for the the local college. So he was a campus a college policeman, which circled around to have a lot to do with how I ended up finding the classical saxophone. Um, but but yeah, that's I'm from I'm from Georgia.
0: Right. And so how did you get introduced to music? Was it through public school? Mm-hmm.
1: That's right. Yes. I was a student in public school and sang in a choir when I was young and started playing the recorder, which I think some people a lot of people start with. And then um when I was twelve years old, it was I had the chance to start a, a wind instrument in band and I had two older sisters who had played flute and clarinet. And so I knew I wanted to play something because I wanted to be in marching band like they were. They were older, so they were doing that. Um, and so I picked the saxophone because it was just pretty—that big S shape and gold—and it had these keys on it. You know, I was a little boy, and it's just I was just drawn to it. Um, just yeah, yeah. And that's how I that's how I got started. Um, but the epiphany for me was um, my my dad circles I said it circles back to my to my to my pops he he loved to listen to classical music and when he was working at the at the light I excuse me at the college you know as a policeman we would we would bring him his dinner and his job he would lock up the school and you know he's the security for the, everything and so he would go to the library there after hours and he'd just have his dinner there listening to classical music and putting on records and this one day he found something, and he he asked my i think it was my oldest sister to drive me there, and he had unlocked the doors it was after hours and I just remember going in the building and hearing a sound and um I just followed the sound because I knew it was only my dad there and i walked I walked into the library and uh of this of the building, and it was just this this sound just blew me away. I just stood there, and my dad saw me, and he held up this l p album and it had this this guy, this this man, very slender and he had wire rimmed glasses and the album said, Eugene Rousseau plays the saxophone. I think that was the <laughs> title. And so it was classical saxophone. I had never heard it, but I was just like, oh my goodness. So we ended up checking out, we actually formally checked out, we didn't just take them sure, from the sure. library, but we <laughs> ended up checking out a whole lot of classical saxophone albums that just by chance, the the woodwinds teacher there had. And that's what I used to listen to. And um, you know, jazz musicians transcribe; they would transcribe solos, and they are trying to study the, the how the musicians play, the nuances, the inflections. And so that's how I really got started with classical saxophone. Was I had recordings of Eugene Rousseau and a French saxophonist Jean Marie Londex and French uh, Marcel Mule um, and Donald Senta. I had he. I had all of these LPs, and I would just. Transcribe I just play by ear playing along with the with the pieces and imitating the vibrato and the sound because I didn't have a Have a formal saxophone teacher of any kind. So it was really exciting and the fire was lit which was Which was the main thing, you know, it's it's about just having that that lighting that fire for young people And that was my moment my epiphany. So
0: yeah, who who was your first teacher then? When did you first? Mm. Have private instruction?
1: Sure. It was later. It was not until high school. Um, I was fortunate that my when I was in the ninth grade, we had a band director who was sh- fresh out of college. His name was Todd Shiver. And Dr. Shiver um, heard me play and he just thought there was something there. And um, yes, he's the person and he, he gave me confidence. He also started to really push me. and to to just see where this could take me. And he said, You if you're you you must get a teacher Otis. You're not, you know, he's a trumpet player. He said, I, I can only go so far with <laughs> right. you. And um through Mr through my band director, Todd Scheiber, but also my father, who was at working at the college, he knew the Woodwinds teacher, his name was Jim Willoughby. And Mr. Willoughby took me under his wing as a private student. And so um, I'm still in touch with Jim Willoughby, right? And, you know, to this day, he was my first saxophone teacher. And so that was how I, I got started. And so, yes. That's yes. a
0: great story. I love that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we all have a beginning, you know. <laughs> we all do.
0: Yes. We all have a beginning. It's always interesting to hear how that introduction to the saxophone happens. I yes. play, You know, I I started in the fourth grade, similarly to you, although for me it was, I started on drums, and I didn't like carrying the snare drum home, Mm. because my parents (laughs) lived a quarter of a mile from the bus stop and carrying that big thing. And they didn't like me playing it, because it was super loud. (laughs) And then when they, the next year, the second year band, they showed, they brought out the saxophone, all the little girls were like, oh... And I was like, yeah, that's for me. (laughs) I'm going to play the saxophone. But, um, that's funny. Yeah. And then. You're very honest. You're very honest,
1: Steve. (laughs) Yeah, well.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's great. It was. And then I just stuck from there. But, um, so you, you studied, you you did your undergrad in Georgia. Is that right? That's right.
1: Yes. Yes. I, I'm from Georgia and, um, you know, my it's my my parents tried their best. They they knew nothing about music at all, and so Mr. Shiver was again my band director. He was the and we 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 trusted him, and so he was very ambitious. And he would send students to all state band auditions and different festivals. And I went to a a, a weekend long festival at the University of Georgia, um, and the saxophone professor there, um, his name was Kenneth Fisher, and he he heard me play, and he. Um, was curious when I, at the end of the festival and asked my dad if I had a teacher and Dr. Shiver. I'm sorry, Dr. Fisher. Um, he just asked my dad if there would be any chance that he might be able to bring me up for some lessons and um, and so my dad did. My he, they they happily did. It was about an hour and a half to two hour drive to get there, mm. but um, my father's teaching schedule was he um he well he worked you know eight to four as a as a high is a high school English teacher, but eight to three thirty or so, and then four until midnight. You know, every day he was also working at the college, so he was spent a lot of time. But he did take off one day a week. He adjusted his schedule, and so he was able to drive me to Athens to the University of Georgia. So my um, junior and senior years, I did. I was able to study with with Dr. Shiber, I'm sorry, Dr. Dr. Fisher, Fisher at the University yeah. of Georgia. And so when it was time to go to college, uh, that was a, a wonderful fit for me. And um, and just on a personal, real personal level, um, sometimes I think that was, you know, crossroads in our lives and directions we have. And um, I was close to home a couple of hours from home, and I was able to go home regularly and be with my family, but it wasn't until i was i was a junior when we discovered we we learned that my mom had cancer and she had oh, it was no. it was it was terminal cancer and oh, oh, um I was able though to be a be a part of the family because of the proximity. And um, I remembered for the the very first time I played um, a solo with band, it was that year, and I got to play a, a concerto with the wind ensemble at University of Georgia. And we were gonna tour and we went um, to Macon, Georgia, which was about a half hour from where I lived. And um, it was It was really hard because my mom was she was she was too sick she couldn't come out and um even though it was it was so close in my family they 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 couldn't be there and so um but still it it took me fifteen years to be able to play that piece that I played back then and um because uh, I just could not revisit this i've I've had a lot of oppor- wonderful opportunities to play a lot of places and do a lot of things, but I purposefully avoided playing that piece for many years. And it wasn't until um, a a wonderful colleague, Ray Kramer, who teaches, he was the band director at IU and he's retired, but he travels all over the world. And he invited me to go to Japan and um, just something told me it's time to play this piece. And so it was, it was one of those moments, you know, 15 years after I lost my mom, when I got to finally came around to play that piece. And uh, it, it means a lot though, but there's a time for everything you know, yeah. healing wow. and, and things. But yeah, that's, that's my little story that's, about, um, about my undergrad and why I think maybe that's the main reason sometimes I went to the University of Georgia was, of course, to, to learn saxophone, but it was that I could be a part of my family
0: at that really tough time for us. Yeah, yeah Wow, so. that's so touching. I'm, I'm really honored that you would share that. That's a beautiful story. Thanks, of course. What Can you tell me what the piece was?
1: Sure, it was the Ron Nelson. It was called Danza Capriccio, and it's a piece for saxophone and band. It was written for Keith Young. Of, he was the saxophone soloist in the Air Force Band in Washington D.C., and um, had a lot of altissimo, went up to high E, and uh, a lot of articulation. And it was just a, its a great piece, real showpiece for the saxophone, and um, and uh, that was the one in my. My doctor Fisher, my my saxophone teacher, said, "I think you can do this one, Otis," and he handpicked it. And so I said, "Okay." And it was a real challenge because I was I was young at the time, but um, it was it was really special.
0: Wow, what were those f- first lessons with Doctor Fisher like? Were you nervous going to the university?
1: Of course, of course, yes. It was it was the big leagues to <laughs> me, and I was a high school student, <laughs> yeah. and and uh, immediately though, I mean, he would he would meet me and just welcome us in and I was meeting the saxophone students and studio members and that really paved the way because I was able to get a sneak peek of what what it's like to be a college student and what it's like to be in a studio and also what it's like to have to have to be around people who are really into music like mm. that. And so yeah. into specifically the saxophone. And so I I was able to spend some time with the, with the college students before and after my lessons and, and I could listen to them play. So he really tried to kind of bring me into the environment as a, um, just to expose me. And I think that was precious. And, um, but he was a very articulate and um, methodical teacher. And he, he really taught me, the importance of of the basics and fundamentals um, and he was very encouraging, but also he was um, he, he was he was very stern and I, I learned to be to tell you the truth Steve you know there are so many different kinds of teachers whom we can study with, but then also we become a teacher later, and we have to find our own voices and I overwhelmingly responded i 've responded with overwhelming positivity to teachers who were so supportive and encouraging and they kind of showed me that the glass was half full and not half empty and they didn't you know pound me for my faults and the (laughs) the deficiencies but they encouraged me for the things that I could do well and so I I really try to maybe that I try to show my students a lot of positivity too probably because that's how I learned the best you know how about you how did how did you how did you (laughs) learn or how do you learn as a, you know, as a young player and develop with your teachers, what worked for you?
0: Well, yeah, I didn't have, well, my first teacher, he was an oboe teacher. So at University of Oregon, uh, uh, Dr. Robert Moore, and he had studied with Marcel Mule. That was sort of his, Oh, wow. As a um, claim to fame on saxophone. And he was very nurturing, very gentle person. And, um, um, and then I went from there and I really, that, that's sort of the, the way I thrive also is, is having somebody just mm. really encourage and, yeah. and point out. And one of my, when I was in grad school, I had the good fortune to be, I was at Arizona State and I had, aside from my primary teacher, uh, Joe Wyco,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I also just, there were so many good teachers there, um, you know. Bob Spring, the clarinetist, and Martin Shuring, the the oboe teacher, and then Mm -hmm. right next door (coughs) to the saxophone studio was the tuba studio, Sam Palafian, Mm -hmm. and um, Mm -hmm. so I just had this great. It was a great environment for me because I just like to learn as much as I can from everybody, and Mm -hmm. that's um, really beautiful. Yes, Sam, who was. I consider one of my mentor teachers, even though he was the drum, he was the tuba teacher. Tuba. I spent a lot of time with this tuba studio. <laughs> he 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 taught me one great thing. Is he's like oh, he's like say, what did he say? He said say when you're when you're working with a student, say four positive things first mm-hmm. before you start being critical. And um, I still think about that to this day. If I do a mm-hmm. master class or if I'm working with a student and. You know, Dr. Waiko taught me so much, and I'm so grateful to him for what he taught me about saxophone. He was also quite stern and mm-hmm. and wasn't, um, how do you say, I, he wasn't really forthcoming with a lot of praise. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but he did, uh, he, he's a fantastic saxophonist, and I, I definitely learned, right. that's really where I learned to play the saxophone, I, I would gotcha. say, for me. Gotcha. But. Here's Otis and his wife, Haruko, Playing Etude Caracteristique by Antonio Pasculi. <laughs> ORCHESTRA PLAYS (laughs)
1: ORCHESTRA
0: PLAYS Georgia is that the first time you played in a quartet
1: yes in fact I was uh when I joined you know once I went there as a freshman um Dr. Fisher put me in a quartet and um it was with Rhett Bender in Ah. fact it was he it was I'm not sure I would do it with my current freshman but what what he did with me (laughs) I think he he trusted them a lot because he put me as this freshman in a group with I believe all three of them were doctoral students and oh so my. <laughs> and so he kind of put me in there and and I was on any and then I was also playing the soprano voice and so I was in this I had this this experience and opportunity to really pl- experience leadership um, but I think he knew very well the three people he was putting me with and they were extremely nurturing and they, you know, we, we went on some trips together and it was just, it was a whole new world for me to have such mentorship. And Rhett Bender, as you know, we are still great friends to this. I'm friends with all of them, yeah. all three of the quartet members to this day, but Rhett and I, you know, we, we go all the way back to when I was a freshman at, at, at the University of Georgia and he was there. That's <laughs> really awesome. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know the the paths we take seem to be set for us sometimes but then you know i call them crossroads where we don't foresee things but we make a choice and it steers us in a different direction than where we were previously going heading and so um you know i studied at the university of georgia with kenneth fisher um and but i was inspired from the beginning by Eugene Rousseau. Right. I I didn't realize it until I was at Georgia, the University of Georgia, that Dr. Rousseau was Kenneth Fisher's teacher. So he was the teacher of my teacher. And so when I was finishing my studies at Georgia, I was thinking about graduate school and that's when Dr. Fisher brought up, have you thought of studying with Eugene Rousseau Um, for grad school? And so that was kind of how that direction shifted and it took me down that path. Um, and so, and then subsequently, while I was studying my master's degree with Dr. Rousseau, he had, um, he traveled a lot for concerts and he was gone for a period of a few weeks and he was good friends with Jean-Yves mm. And so he, he brought in Jean-Yves Formaux as a guest and the first lesson we, I just, I just gelled so well with him. And it was it was so very, very special. And I remember. Um, Having the the lesson and finishing the lesson, and there was a payphone at the end of the hallway outside of Dr. Russo's office. And at the time, I was I was dating my Haruko, my my wife, and she had finished her studies before me um, at at IU. We were already uh, dating, but she um, she was then studying in Amsterdam at the Amsterdam Conservatory on piano. And I remember running down the down the hall to call her and to <laughs> tell her about this amazing man, Jean-Yves Formeau, And that's, you know, it, it just, it, it has so much meaning for me back to, back to that point. And so Mr. Formeau and I, to this day, we have just remained in touch and he's, I call him, sometimes I call him Uncle Johnny, um, <laughs> Jean, Jean-Yves Jean, Johnny, <laughs> sure. because he's, he's just really a part, has been a part of my life. And I think he always will be, and uh, he's kind of like my family.
0: Yeah. So. What was it about that lesson that really was a touchstone Mm. for you?
1: Yeah, it was, um, Mr. Formol could talk and explain how to play the horn, but I had not had a teacher who would just reach over, pick up his instrument, and then demonstrate it exactly as he was playing, as he was describing it. And he could just do that, and it it was just like on his CDs. And he's a wonderful player. Um, And so... Dr Rousseau is he's he was such an important figure in my life as well but he was he would teach me more by explaining and getting me to to think about things and to process um, it was a very different method, and when Dr. Rousseau demonstrated, it was very special because he didn't he didn 't play for us all the time, so when he yeah. played he was oh he's, he played in the <laughs> studio we 'd say, "Did you hear dr Rousseau? I, I I heard Dr Rousseau today We were so excited <laughs> yeah. um, but 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 Johnny Formeau it was just he 'd talk and he 'd just pick up the horn and just play it. It was so integrated into his teaching, and maybe that 's had a profound influence on me i i 'm very similar where i just I demonstrate a lot. Because I feel like that's my second voice. My my true voice is my 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 voice voice, but my second voice is my instrument, and I just I, I'm I it really goes back to Mr. Formo in that respect.
0: That's amazing. <laughs> so you did your your masters and your doctorate at IU, and then where did where did uh, going to France fit in in there? Was it after right. or during that? Or
1: no, it was it was during it was okay. um it was during the. I was finishing my master's degree, and actually, start, I had started into the doctorate. There was a that was kind of that bridge. It was that time, and so um, I think I'd done a year, about a year and a half of doctoral coursework, or about a year of doctoral coursework, and um, and I had the chance to the Fulbright to go study. And I was planning to just go. It was a one year grant. I was going to go there study, return to study with um, to my studies with Eugene Rousseau. Um, but halfway or three quarters of the way through my year in France, we all learned that Dr. Rousseau was retiring. He was retiring Mm -hmm. and going to continue working at the University of Minnesota. Um, and so, um, and so I did not go to Minnesota. I returned to IU as a doctoral student, um, just for a number of reasons. One of the biggest reasons was, um, my wife and I, we, we Haruko and I, loved Paris. We loved living in France, but we were we were very lonely. We had we made wonderful friends, but we were just lonely. And so, the thought of um, of going to the Minneapolis with Dr. Rousseau to be in his program there, it was a little overwhelming for us. We 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 kind of wanted home for our family. So I came back and um, continued my studies here at IU. And during that year of my after returning. I used, had a search for Dr. Russo's position and um, I didn't think of applying. <laughs> um, of course, it was, but but a number of faculty had just passed me in the hall, like David Baker, who was one of our great oh, jazz yeah. teachers. And he, or he said, Otis, I hope you will apply for this job. You know, he was just, he was so kind and so supportive of everyone. But, um, and several other faculty just kind of mentioned it to me. and um, And I realized at one point We really loved living in Bloomington, I thought, for our family. Of course, IU is a wonderful music school, and um, I thought that there was no harm in putting in an application with the encouragement of my colleagues. Um, And also there was a position at the University of Iowa, which um, I had already applied for considering. And so that's how it started, and it was interesting because I was a student, just like the other students. and. Um, IU typically d- hires people who have already been w- super well established in their careers, and then they come back around. And so it was a fascinating process because there were six up, there were six finalists, and um, maybe the other five had been teaching at least twenty years. All five of them, and so there was a huge difference in our our experience. And of course, um, I had. I had had some success in some international saxophone competitions so I think there was a, a, there was a hope that maybe <laughs> I could continue the path and so I'm I'm I will always be grateful of how the to my to my studio members because it was interesting each each candidate gave a recital and a masterclass and um it was really fascinating how when I finished my my masterclass how the studio members started to see me differently and to start to become very supportive. And it was just fascinating. This is during the process. And then we gave a recital, which it was my doctoral recital, (laughs) but it also qualified as my, you know, application, you know, for my job interview. Um, And so it was just really special. and, And I'll always be grateful to Gwen Richards, who was our dean, who, um, who said, he said, Otis, we, we want you. and um, But I coincidentally had been offered the job at the University of Iowa at the same time. So it was, it was a really special time for us as a family and trying to find the right path. And Haruko and I felt IU and Bloomington was the right place. So,
0: yeah. That's great. That's great. What a trip to be... Applying you're in the program and you're applying to be this yes. the professor. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And it was it was
1: the first year, so it was after getting the job, it was very awkward because I was suddenly teaching my peers who are there as my peers. It was a very <laughs> awkward first couple of years and some of them actually were older than oh, i right. so it was it was a it was a funny dynamic but everybody was very supportive and um especially the the faculty though they were really mentoring me because i was a baby i think i, I think I was the young right? i was 28 and maybe that's not the youngest for 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 many schools but for iu i think i yeah. think it might still be the youngest i think it is anybody it's it's it was pretty young and so i i had a lot of support especially from my woodwind colleagues who um, who supported me. So yeah, and Tom Walsh, who's my jazz, you know, saxophone colleague here. He was there and we're we're really great colleagues to this day.
0: That's so, awesome. So yeah. you had how tell me about your relationship with David Baker.
1: Oh, David Baker. Well, I I took some of his jazz classes and we got to when we were able to meet. And he just again, he just David took a lot of people under his wing as this amazing mentor. And he decided I would be one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> and he just was always supportive. And he we would talk for a long time at, whenever we saw each other and I'd visit him. And my wife and I rented a house, which coincidentally was a couple of doors down from David's house. So we would, we would visit them at their home. And he was just this overwhelmingly positive man who was, who was living history. I mean, he had yeah. played, he, he, would, he, he knew the greats in jazz, he had lived it, he was a great musician, he played with them, I mean, and he was passing it on to the next generation. So he was an incredibly inspiring figure to any everybody who knew him I still miss him very much
0: yeah yeah He's such an influence on jazz education in this yes in the in this country and globally I would say globally like. absolutely absolutely he cut a path yeah no question <laughs> so um, you have a strong connection to Japan is that primarily because of your wife sure
1: it, it is um, Japan has a, a very strong classical saxophone um, culture there. I mean, it's, we just had the, the, the Adolf Sax International Saxophone Competition. This is one I played in when I was um, a student, and I was able to get a prize in that one. And it's, I think the one that just took place, I think two, the top two Prize winners were from Japan. In fact, the one that just took place—it's a powerhouse on classical saxophone. And um, just when I was young, my first year of teaching at IU, there was a World Saxophone Congress in Montreal, and some of the Japanese professors heard us, heard Haruko and I play, and this, they asked us to come over and uh, you know to visit. And of course, I was able at that I saw it as a great opportunity to go visit Haruko's homeland, um, because she I had not had a chance to to go to Japan before then. And so we went there. And um, of course, there were a lot of things that suddenly opened, you know, once we were going there. And, and, um, and so up until the pandemic, I I visited Japan every single year since 2001. Um, Up until two years ago, once the pandemic came, we haven't we had to postpone things but um I'm scheduled to go again in 2023 so I'm looking forward to that but Japan is a uh, it's it's a beautiful place beautiful people and um it's been a training ground an incredible incredibly supportive environment for me and um I've taught in a festival there it's uh, it's called the Hamamatsu uh International Wind Instrument Academy and it has about 16 or 17 faculty but um on uh, just brass and woodwinds, two per instrument, but they've they added saxophone. I mean, with saxophone they have three. Um, but but and so it's just every year the faculty alternate, uh, except saxophone. Um, but the it, and I'm I'm very grateful. But it's they have the principal like uh, Chris Mardin, who's the principal trumpet of New York Phil. He teaches there sometimes, and um, Gene Picorni principal of Chicago tuba um, you know they have some heavyweight wind players who are there and it's been really great but the, the saxophone faculty are, are Nobuya Sugawa who's one of the great players and one of my ins- one of my inspirations and then uh, Johnny Formo, my teacher and then they've added me as a third teacher so I've been there since 2005 or so I've, I've been going a, a lot of a lot of years and it's really a great 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 environment
0: now, is that in Tokyo?
1: Where is it? No, it's in the city of Hamamatsu.
0: Okay.
1: Um, Hamamatsu is... Um, so, I play a Yamaha. I play Yamaha saxophones.
0: Right, you're a Yamaha so, artist. So I'm a right? Yamaha
1: artist, that's right. And so, uh, Toyoka is uh, is there. It's called the Toyoka factory. And that's where... Hama, and it's in basically in Hamamatsu. And that's where Yamaha Japan is based. And so there's a festival that they've been organizing for many years. And so that's yes. And so um, I, we're able to be there with directly with the Yamaha, like the saxophone designers, and we get to have dinner and talk with them and really spend time. And um, and I've, I've been able to see how the saxophones come about, literally seeing it in the factory, but also behind the scenes. I've had the privilege of seeing how they go about developing, um, researching and, and testing different things it's really been fascinating and uh, saxophone I know they're they're trying to really get cross every T and dot every I for us as players and and so it's been a real privilege to have to be able to see the inside inner workings like that so
0: yeah do you have um, any like do they consult you about like um, when they're making when when there's a new design or do they like say you like say hey can we do something about the C sharp (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I'm involved in that. Yes, and and
1: the prototypes and playing prototypes and part that's part of what we do. when we are there at Hamamatsu Academy. Is we we sometimes test prototype equipment and give feedback. And and also I I play at a in the United States we play at a four forty a four four zero. But in a lot of other countries in the world it's a four four two. Or in Austria and Germany it's. Higher 444, right. or higher. Pitches going up. Pitches, yes, in different places, um, the United States, um, Australia, Great Britain. Uh, so basically, I think it comes back to the countries that have maybe colonial ties to 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 Great Britain are four four zero. But um, one of the things I do is when I'm testing, I'm testing it. I'm I'm playing in at four four two, and I'm in Japan because that's you know the way that that's the pitch center. But when I test, I often move my instrument to test at 440. And and then I'll take things home and test them here and live with them for a while. So it's to, it's kind of to affirm that it works at this pitch too. That's, I think, a part of what I'm, what I'm,
0: what I'm doing too. Yeah. Is that yeah. a challenge for you orally to like make that switch? Like,
1: <laughs> yes, it actually is. Um, That's a great question. Because we associate the tone, like the sound of so our saxophones are built, say, Selmer, Yamaha, Yanagisawa, they're all built at 442, which is a higher pitch center than where we are here. Um, But there is a tone color at 440, that when you suddenly play at 442, it's a different sound, a different quality. And so sometimes I would travel to Japan I'd fly to Japan and then the next day say give a recital some I'm, I'm I'm adjusting my instrument for tuning like normal so I'm pushing the mouthpiece in to shorten the instrument to play at 442 but I still find myself sometimes blowing flat blowing a little low and I and I I just figure it's my it's the color of the sound that I'm seeking. Yeah. And it takes me a few days to get adjusted sometimes but then mm-hmm. once I get Adjusted at 442. I don't want to change <laughs> wanna back because back. <laughs> it's, it, it plays so well at that pitch. So yeah, the instruments are are built at 442. So they are they really are optimized. At least in my opinion, they, it really feels optimized to me, Steve, at that right. pitch. But yeah, that's great. That's awesome. But we 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 have to be flexible, and mm. just by adjusting um, the position of the mouthpiece, it puts us in the ballpark. But we have to still dial in our ears, like the voicing adjustments we make as players to adjust with our tongue positioning, etc. Those ratios actually, for me at least, change a bit from 440 to 442. So at 442, my high register suddenly is a little sharper than at 440, and it's just the instrument; it's just skewed a little more, a little more different, a little different. In, in a different way. And so the, the positioning that I normally make, I just kind of need a little time to live with it. And I find I just slide into a subtly different position that, you know, like a sweet spot you learn. But it's a tone, tone color. It's, it's, you know, like people talk about perfect pitch and things. It's related to the color of the sound and the qualities of the sound versus just simply a B is a B. A B is not a B. It's <laughs> it's their, their differences. So...
0: Yeah. Here's Otis with the Indiana University Wind Ensemble performing A Gershwin Fantasy. you know one thing striking in listening to you play is your tone it's so um it, you have such a smooth a uh, smooth and dark rich sound and it uh, makes me believe that that you've spent a lot of time thinking about and working on your sound and on your tone and that must be mm-hmm. really important to you
1: oh, that's, that's very sweet of you all of us you know it's our it's our voices and yeah, we we have we have this privilege of playing an instrument that is, um, you know, saxophone. Sax is a was a was a person. Adolf Sax. Sax. It was a person, and then phone means sound, and o means of. So sound of sax is what saxophone means, and it's this is this really great instrument he invented that is made of brass, made of metal, <clears throat> but it has. Um, It has a fingering system like woodwinds, like kind of like a flute. It has a clarinet-like mouthpiece, but it has this, it's called a conical bore, and that's kind of like a, almost like a trumpet, if you will, or, I mean, oboe, oboe is conical. But there are qualities that we are able to achieve with this fingering system and mouthpiece and shape that give us power and we have a lot of harmonics in the sound. And in any classical instrument, I think the whether it's trumpet or oboe or saxophone we're striving for an element of purity in the sound um, but it it can't just be well that means in saxophone because we have such a rich palette we kind of have to take out some of those excess excess harmonics to kind of find that more pure sound and so um, in classical saxophone that's one of the things that always drew me to it literally the first time i heard eugene rousseau when i that inspiring moment for me i actually did not know it was a saxophone and it's fascinating because a lot of classical players sometimes the audience members say oh it didn't sound like a saxophone or i didn't know that was a saxophone until i saw it in your hands Um, and that's a tribute to the the instrument's flexibility and how it has such a rich palette of colors um, at its disposal too so it's just a really really fascinating instrument we get to play, Steve.
0: <laughs> it is. That's gorgeous. What sort of, I'm curious, what sort of exercises you do or you have your students do related to tone production and tone mm-hmm. quality?
1: Sure. We spend a lot of time on tuning, to be honest, um, because the instrument is very flexible. And so um, we often, I, I my students and I tend to, I tend to encourage my students to play with with a speaker. So um so instead of just a plain metronome, connect that metronome to a speaker or, you know, now it's the phones we use, uh like, you know, with tuner and metronome. But the saxophone by its nature has a large voice. Uh, we have a big sound. And I feel like the if I'm playing with just my phone tuner for example i just I, I i overwhelm it and so i think learning to play in tune requires us to respect balance and i, I cannot play in tune if my volume is much louder than the other volume around me just like another note and this also is important when we play with other people we have to be able to hear other people around us to be able to fit our sound Within that, you know, you know what I mean. And make no mistake about it: when we play, there are vibrations all around us, but they're also going into our bodies from the instrument. And our so our our body is a resonator too. And so there's a lot that we have to learn to kind of discern, to fit to figure things out. But um, working on sound, we spend a lot of time. Um, we my students and I spend time making less desirable sounds at first so we we have like a like a a three stage goal we start by just putting the instrument putting the mouthpiece in our mouths and just blowing and it's just a very diffused wide sound on just any note and then i say okay now that was say there's a target and we just completely covered the target and then with that and so then i say now let's try to hit somewhere near the center of the target um now and then so the second is a more refined sound and then i say okay now finally let's hit the center of the center let's hit the bullseye and the third is the most refined sound and so it's it's learning to kind of dial in or dial out we also are able to dial that back out too so it's not just always looking for the bullseye it's it's Having those choices having those choices that's right and And learning to be aware of ourselves and to use the senses. I often tell my students when we play, you know, we have five senses, and I often say we want to try to use as many of them as we can. Um, So the one that we don't get into of the five is smell. So we say let's just let's not get into smell, (laughs) but sight, hearing, (laughs) (laughs) yes, (laughs) but 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 sight, hearing taste and touch they're all involved with playing a saxophone um, and I think about like a piano a pianist sees the key sight touches it by pressing it and you hear it by, after you press it and on a piano it's always the same so many pianists who start young they develop perfect pitch some people are born with perfect pitch but a, a lot of other people acquire it develop it, yes. Um, and so that's one of the things is there's so much reinforcement there of sight, hearing and touch. Um, but with saxophone, when we play, sight is, um, sight is not reading the notes. That's not what I'm referencing. Sight means looking at the instrument when you're playing. We are missing sight because yes. the, the, key, the keys are down by our hip, you know, and down low. And so I do teach my students to kind of just look at a diagonal and we learn to use our peripheral vision and we can see the fingers move. And it's like um kind of like a string instrument in a way. String players when they play, it's almost a system. There is a system to they are how they go up the string, change position, they go, you know, how how the instrument is built. And so we're able to add sight. To in how we are coordinating the keys, then, and I believe that's one of those senses we we get to take advantage of. Of course, hearing with so the sound, um, and then um, with touch is f- the feel of pressing the keys. The taste one is not really; it's a funny one, but it's not that when I'm tasting the reed. Yes, a new a brand new reed has a certain taste that's different from one that you've been playing for a while, but it's that sensation and taste as well of that reed vibrating on my tongue and that there's a memory and so i try to teach my students a lot about memory and memory is is muscle memory it's memorizing the music and when we play a piece we have to be like a tour guide and so you've got to know that piece inside and out from memory essentially so then you can guide the audience because the audience is trusting you um, fully to give them the full capacity of this piece and so those are just a few a few little ideas we have that we that we try out here at IU
0: (laughs) right and when you're talking about using the tuner you're talking about one that makes sound you're not looking at the meters necessarily
1: well both but the the main the mainstay is the ear so we we do need to learn to adjust based on what we hear but because when we play a wind instrument we We press a key, like when I play b" on the saxophone, I press my index, my first finger down that 's a b with all the good and all the bad that 's associated with it, so it's maybe it 's a thinner sounding note it's sometimes the tuning is flat there's some issues with the b it responds super fast, um, and so we need to learn, and this is the memory memorization or memory element. we need to learn the characteristics of the instrument to anticipate them before we blow and before we play them. And then we're able to place them. And placement is a huge part. Um, my, my my daughter is a harpist um, and she had a leap in her playing where she started to discover that, yes, you can play the harp, you can play very fast on the harp or any instrument. As soon as, soon as your fingers touch the strings, you will get a sound. But what she learned was the importance of getting the fingers on those strings even a fraction of a second before you pluck. That allows you to place and to really create the sound. And so it's the difference of someone just plunking on a piano and then someone who's really able to get colors and play. And so I think that applies to every instrument. So placement is a huge part of it.
0: Yeah. Oh, well, thanks. You've been teaching at IU for how long?
1: 20, years, my (laughs) 20th, 20th year now. Yeah.
0: (laughs) How has your teaching changed from when you first Mm. started to now?
1: Mm, that's a great question. I'll say, honestly, when I first started teaching, I was very much kind of regurgitating what my teachers had taught me. And and I had um, wonderful teachers. And so I was very much teaching my students the same exact material, the same way. But over time, no matter how hard you try, you you learn to start saying things yourself. And um, I I was really lucky that when I was in this early stage in my as a as a professional and a student, I was still a student. It was an interesting little dynamic. But I was I was able to get out immediately and start. Performing and teaching professionally a lot the moment you know it, even before I was at IU, i u had it was a great privilege for me, and a lot of that learning to teach goes to, goes back to Eugene Rousseau for me because um, Dr. Rousseau when um he he took me under his wing you know it 's just a teacher who really sees something in you, and also Haruko was there she was uh, my wife is a pianist, and she was accompanying some of the saxophone students and that 's how we met um but he would take Haruko and I, he would take us with him when he was doing festivals sometimes. And I remember this one festival he took me and it was his event, but he only taught half of the day. And he said, okay, Otis, the evening session, they're all yours. <laughs> Do what you want this week. And I said, huh? <laughs> and he went off. I, I think he went to see his grandkids. I think oh. he he was going to enjoy, you know, he was in yeah. Wisconsin. I think it was he was going to see his family and it was that was you know aside from that shock all of a sudden i was thrown out there and um i learned to teach and i learned about his teaching especially at the time because it was he he was trusting me with his with his class i felt and so that really helped me and then once i started once i became my own teacher here at iu it was just natural you start to just find your own voice and i was expecting to finish my doctorate because I was so far along with the doctorate when I started the job here, it only made sense for me to finish it and it would have just taken me a, a year or more. But in the end, it took me like five, seven years to finish my doctorate degree. And it was because I was doing a lot as a professional and I was teaching a full-time job. It was just, I couldn't, and also my family, my family's really important to me. So it was just trying to, trying to just hold the fort and stay balanced. But um. But yeah, and so teaching over 20 years, I've learned, it's interesting, I, I find I've codified some things as a studio for my students in our studio where we, we all do certain technique that we all, from freshman to doctoral student, are responsible to do any day, any time. And um, we play a lot together. So I do technique classes, small group technique classes with my students and just we just kind of pound a lot of tech you know playing passages together but also interp- so. in in yes and but also musical interpretation mm. too we play orchestral excerpts we work on lyrical playing um we 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 spend a lot of time playing for each other And I play a lot, but also, so my students hear me, but they also hear me make mistakes too. And I'm not, that's a huge part of it is I'm no different from them. I'm just a little older. And so I think it's really important for them to not be afraid to mess up and to to take risks. It's a huge part of what we are doing in this field. And making music is not about the person, like as the performer, it's it's really not about me. It's about... That audience in front of me, and if I have issues in my playing, I need to figure out how to solve them because I, that takes away from the audience's experience. If I'm if I'm struggling and stressed, so I think it's really important to work on our um, technique. We we do something we call it the five T's: tone, tuning, tonguing, technique, timing, and we're always gauging those. And like whenever we play, and how is this over here? And it's like a balance, and always trying to stay. Stay grounded.
0: I, love that. I like wow. the five Ts. That's awesome. <laughs> tell speaking of T's, tell me about this uh so you're playing the Henry Tomasi Concerto with the Rogue Valley Symphony. Yes. Tell me about this concerto. Or tell sure. our audience about the concerto.
1: I know about it. but <laughs> Yeah, you, you you know this piece. Yeah, the Tomasi, Henri Tomasi, Henry Tomasi um, was a French composer. This piece was written in um, 1949 for Marcel Mule, who was the professor at the Paris Conservatory. Um, Tomasi loved the saxophone. He wrote a lot of music that... It's based on marches so when you listen to this music I would say it's martial in its qualities so it's got these marches throughout and it has a lot of ostinati or ostinatos um, ostinato is a repeating pattern in a bass figure. And so that's kind of the ground for this music. And it's it's there to just kind of drive us always forward. And it's a huge orchestra. I'm really excited to perform it. Um, it has full strings and winds, a percussion battery. It even has a harp. I mean, it's got all kinds of instruments in it. And it's just, it's going to be, a, it's a fun work um, in two movements for the saxophone uh, so, yeah, the tomazzi concerto it's one of our bread and butter standard staple pieces in the repertoire.
0: Mm. Do you memorize your pieces that you I do perform? some
1: of them sure i'm i I do memorize as much as I can. I think whenever I play um the pieces memorized, whether I have the music or not um it's funny I've played concertos and I've done both directions and I, my my son is a cellist he's studying very seriously. Cello, so he's memorized pieces since he was six years old. So he's able he's really able to look at a piece quickly and just memorize. it amazes me how quickly I think he has a great ear, by right. the way, too. <laughs> But he can memorize so quickly. Um I'm not as gifted at memorization from playing from memory. So I'm not sure what we're we're talking now. I'm hoping to play from memory, but we'll see. It also depends on how if I'm focused more on when I'm, what's going on around me, you know, when we play from memory, it just dials up our senses. This, to me, it dials, dials up my senses and I'm able to just really engage more. Um, but it depends on how comfortable, say, the orchestra and I are together. But yes, yes, I hope to play from memory.
0: It must be a thrill to play with a, an orchestra. I mean, for, for me, I don't think I've ever played with, well, played in the <laughs> orchestra, but I've never soloed with orchestra. It's always been a piano reduction so that sure. must be a, a wonderful feeling to play with a, such special. a large ensemble.
1: Yes, and the saxophone is, you know, it's it's its own unique instrument. Like if you've ever played like, for example, on this concert, um, they will play Mio, Darius Mio. It's called um, La Creation du Monde. It's the, called The Creation of the World. And it has a very prominent saxophone part that Rhett Bender is going to be playing. And so it's really it's going to be fun because that work has, it's a smaller ensemble there, but it has a lot of interchange between saxophone and the saxophone is a solo, but it also is a member of the group. A concerto, by its nature, is a feature for an instrument. So, um, I'm it's mostly saxophone. Is like gonna be, saxophone, saxophone. Right. <laughs> And then, you know, but there is a lot of time. You will also hear the saxophone blend, but it's still saxophone a lot. So, uh, a challenge is that the saxophone has a again a big voice. That's our strength, and so we're able to get a lot of projection. And because there's only one saxophone. It's not like there is a section like of one violin playing with a concerto of strings. Um, the instrument is able to stand out for its tone color in, 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 in unique ways, I
0: think. Yeah. Of course, yeah. I can't wait. I can't wait to hear
1: it. <laughs> Thank you,
0: Steve. Um, what else is coming up for you this year? Do you have any um, mm-hmm. like commissions that you're doing or any other big performances mm, sure. or tours? Or? Um,
1: sure i'm i don 't have any commissions this year, but um yeah, I have some performances coming up this summer um, i'm hopefully i 'm I'm planning to go abroad for the first time it 's been a, a couple of years since i 've been abroad, but I have something um, in Italy in Sicily, Italy, which is oh, the wow. first time first That's time amazing. ever to go there, and then some other thing in Portugal, and I'm looking forward, hoping to get possibly get get to Asia as well uh, later and deeper in the year. And my wife and I are, are recording a, a new CD this summer as well for saxophone and piano. And we we really enjoy making music, and uh, and as a family, our our kids are musicians, and um, and we we enjoy performing together whenever we can. That's one of the things we kind of learned to do, not learn, we it's one of the things we just really loved doing um especially over the past couple of years when we were all of us musicians all over the world were home uh, and not traveling so I was able to make music right here in our own living room
0: with your family that's with all, our family. that's really great yeah, how cool yeah it is fun
1: and very blessed so
0: do you have the program selected for this CD that you're recording
1: not completely but it's going to be a music for a program of music of Japanese and American Um, of of merging the two cultures musically. So that's one of the big parts. And so we have a a very good friend. Um, His his last name is Ishikawa. His his name is Ryota Ishikawa. And um, he's a wonderful composer who writes very accessible music for audiences. Um, And so he's writing a new piece for us for this CD. But we're also going to play some American Standard pieces even But it's it's the idea is to merge Is to just blend the cultures More, my wife is Japanese I'm I'm American um, And just trying to, I'm African American You know, so it, there might even be Some some combinations specifically In that, respecting those Cultures, our, our cultures, our families Blend, if you will
0: <laughs> Nice,
1: nice Thank you, Steve
0: Yeah, we'll look forward to, to That recording coming out Do you Uh, Just a couple of quick questions to kind of wrap up. Um, Do you remember the first saxophone recording you you purchased or you bought?
1: Oh, I don't. But I do remember going to Tower Records, which was in Atlanta. It was this huge record store and just seeing tons of saxophone CDs. It was in Atlanta. It was in the big city, you know, Atlanta. We had to get up to Atlanta. And I just always remember just just, I, I had limited funds. I think I bought three, but that was breaking the bank for me big time <laughs> at that time. And I, I remember buying those recordings and just playing them all the time. Again, you know, transcribe, I don't want to say transcribing, but a lot of my early learning of classical saxophone was I didn't have a teacher. And so I was, I. but I did have these recordings. And so I was, I was just really able to figure some things out, but also of course create all kinds of bad habits along the way. But it it, it was but it was keeping the fire lit. And so that's one of the things I just want to say is is these past two years have been really hard for young musicians, I think, especially. I'm I'm older now and I, I'm I'm I've been out there doing things and I'm happy to have chances to get back out there. But young musicians this who are just starting their careers, you know, it's been hard for them. And, and I'm, I, my, my heart is, is heavy, but at the same time, my heart is very much live. It's, it's lightened too, because I think when these young musicians come out in the very near future, they're going to be exploding and it's a beautiful thing for all of us. And I think we're going to see some exciting things happening in the arts very, 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 very soon. So it's, uh, yeah can't hold it down can't hold no
0: you can't keep people
1: down. down you can't keep a, yes <laughs> maybe one of the most moving experiences for me undoubtedly was was getting to play music um with we, my entire family we, we have six six kids and we just simply played in our church and oh, uh, my beautiful. my my little son Aiden was learning the saxophone and we had to get him a curved soprano saxophone because he was only he was only seven. And then our youngest daughter, she's playing cello and we have a um, flute and harp and French horn and another cellist. And so all eight of us played music and performed. And that perhaps is something that I will never forget, having that moment in little saxophone with my son there. Um, yeah those things count. And I think we need to just look at the little things in life. Not, I'm not talking about any playing in whatever halls or doing. It's those things that really let you connect with people. And I think that's what music is about. And, if, and I, I think that's what I want to be uh, for my students and my family. And for, for me, I want to be able to, to hold my head high and say, I know you through music to someone or someone says to me, and we just instantly become siblings or brothers or sisters. And that's something to me, only music can do that, I think. So Beautiful. I'm, I'm very, very grateful for this field.
0: Yeah. Otis, that seems like a really good closing for our talk. Thank you so much for, for being here. We're all looking forward to you coming to Southern Oregon next Thank month. You. And we'll hear the Tomasi Concerto and uh yeah thank you
1: it's been a real treat thank you steve and i'm I'm really excited to have this time there in medford and and oregon and with the with the rogue valley symphony it's going to be fun thank you it's my
0: honor My, my my great great honor okay thanks otis hi again i hope you enjoyed this episode with my friend the amazing saxophonist otis murphy to learn more about Otis, visit his website, otismurphy.com. That's O-I-T-S-M-U-R-P-H-Y.com. Otis is a Yamaha artist and plays Yamaha saxophones exclusively. Be on the lookout for his upcoming recording this year. And if you're in Southern Oregon, make sure to check out his performance with the Rogue Valley Symphony, April 22nd through the 24th, either in Medford, Ashland, or Grant's Pass. I hope you had fun with this episode. Leave me a comment on Apple Podcasts or Spotify about which segment you enjoyed the most. And please visit my website, theplayfulmusician.com. There you can see show notes from this and all past episodes. You can also listen to past episodes there as well, or just listen wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you back here again real soon.